Hi everyone. Hi everyone. <laughs> um, it's lovely to see some familiar faces and unfamiliar. Um, some young and some not as young, uh, including Rod next to me. Um, not so young. Not so young, uh, but young at heart. <clears throat> uh, Rachel, I want to thank you for the opportunity to to be a part of this evening. I know that um, uh, it's a huge privilege for me. And when we started speaking about the night, as I was praying about it and thinking about the kinds of things that um, Rachel has been setting the year for, um, I kind of thought, well, I have an idea, but it involves a friend of mine. <clears throat> um, and it's more than just a friend, but a, a mentor. Uh, and so I called Rod and uh, I said, I've got this thing. Do you want to come to Newcastle? He, li he lives in the Blue Mountains. And... Um, Springwood in Springwood. Yeah. Springwood. Yeah. Um, and he, he agreed. It's like, yes. So um, I really am going to just share a few thoughts on uh, the theme that, that Rach has, has said and I think is a great one, in particular because of the life and times that we live in. Um, and then I'm going to hand over to Rod. And uh, the cool thing about having someone like Rod here is that all the questions that I prefer not to answer... I can just go, yeah, Rod's much better at that than I am. So, Rod, what do you think? I asked for that particular scripture to be read um, and just wondered if uh, that was familiar to many of you in the room, that passage from Philippians 2, um, you know, that Christ didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but willingly stepped back, put on skin, if you will, and became a human being, vulnerable, uh, and in our likeness. And I wonder what went through your mind. Um, I know for me that when I first, first read that um, some time ago, the story in my mind went something like, geez, humans were so wicked. The Father, Son, and Spirit were having some sort of conversation and probably a bit of a gripe as they looked down and then kind of drew straws to see what would happen. Like, oh, Jesus got the short stick, the short end of the straw. He's like, all right, I guess I'll go down and become like one of them. Which is, I mean, it's silly, isn't it, to, to, to think about that. But I think it wasn't until much later that uh, I was deeply challenged by what is weirdly referred to by theologians as the modality of the Trinity. I have a question for you. Uh, do you think that that little sequence of verses that was read is the exception. Is it the exception? Let me jog your memory about what was just read while I find it again. Rod, do you, do you want to say anything? Um, no. <laughs> not, not really. I enjoy sitting here next to Matt and um, we'll have a good day chatting tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to say a few things about Psalm 8. Um, after Matt's talked about Philippians 2. So mm. two of the key passages, I think, around identity. And <clears throat> I'm glad you've chosen this topic because I actually think the question, who am I and what am I to do, is two questions. Um, that is the key question for our generation. So we need to face up to it. Um, so identity and purpose, uh, I think, are the, 
are the big issues. And because things are changing so rapidly in the world now and have been for a couple of generations because there's such fluidity and such rapidness of change, uh, identity issues are as fluid as they've ever been and perhaps more so. So finding some grounds from which at least to start our dialogue is critical and this is one of the grounds. Yeah. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing, common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name every knee shall bow, in heaven and earth and on under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That instruction from Paul about us having, uh, or him being encouraged by us having one mind, thinking of others more highly than we think of ourselves, I thought was a kind of a separate thing to the very thing he then goes on to and talks about the nature of a Trinitarian God. So I'll just pose that question again. Is the scenario that's being described in this passage in two, uh, Philippians chapter 2, is that an exception? Was God kind of um, putting on flesh in Christ as an afterthought? Alex knows what he thinks about the, the question. It's a serious question. I think one that we really should think about. In Genesis 1, 26, 27, there's a conversation that takes place in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, and says, we were going to make humankind in our image, plural. This Godhead in the, in the person of Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, who you sitting here right now are image bearers of. You bear an image of of a triune God who has a particular identity and relationship with himself. Now, I apologize for perhaps getting too abstract. Um, Ian, if you want <clears throat> to um, put the first slide up, if that's okay. This is a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. And you, pay, you perhaps remember or have read this passage where he asks his disciples, this question. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The next slide is a quote from uh, theologian A.W. Tozer, who you've perhaps um, heard of, that says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Bit of a staggering statement. Do you believe it? The most important thing. Well, uh, if I just go, go back to that previous slide, you know, Jesus responds to Peter's declaration, a right definition of who he is, with this kind of explosive. That's the statement on which I'm going to build my church. And so, A.W. Tozer would, I think, agree in the next slide, which says, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of eminent importance. Eminent importance. Or immense. Immense. And immense. You know. It's really important, Tozer would say. I wonder if, um, you know, if you came out, came a part of that passage that talks about God being love. Remember the Again, the kind of that futile thought when I had when I was much younger that thought God was lonely, and so He made me. That's how can he, he can be loved because I'm the object, which, as lovable as my wife would tell you, I am. <clears throat> it's not entirely true because that would presuppose that God needed something outside of Himself in order to direct love too. So the fact that God we here in the scriptures, is a relational being in and of himself, because how else could we mimic in our relationships with one another a triune image? So, the modality of the Trinity is incorporeal and perichoretic, all terms I have no idea what it means, but it really is what makes it not. They're theological terms that, that say that by, very, by the very nature of God, he is self-emptying, only to be filled back up again because he's in triune relationship. Mysterious? Absolutely. Crazy? Maybe. Easy to understand? No, not at all. But here's the thing. That is the image that we bear, and I think it has a profound effect on our understanding of identity. And so I am going to pass it to Rod. I'm, I'm, I have a few other thoughts, but I, I thought in light of having him here, and I, and I, and I will say that my, my hope is that for you as a young person or a less than young person, maybe even an older person, my hope is that you will have someone in your life that is constantly able to challenge you because they are challenged, they're challenging themselves. That's the privilege of having a friend like Rod is because what I know is that um, there's like people who read the scriptures and enjoy them, and I, I would count myself in that group. And then there's people who consume the scriptures in such a way to not just gain understanding, but have profound and wise insight that then by just hanging out with, you kind of get the shrapnel of. And that's why I really appreciate having Rod in my life, because he's able to articulate things because he's steeped in the scriptures, but also paying attention to the world around him. 
And so I'm indebted to you, friend. And um, what do you think of what I've said so far? Is it something you would agree with? He doesn't often agree with me, but... That's good. Good starting point, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, Matt used the word perichoretic, which is a, an unused word in, in our wider culture. Anyone know what it means? No. Because it's a good word to know. Uh, perichoretic means to, um, to dance around. Uh, and when theologians were trying to work out how do we describe the fact that God is one but three, um, and it's a sort of this fluid and dynamic relational being, the Lord who speaks and loves and <clears throat> creates, what could we say that looks like? And in the ancient times, um, theologians said it looks like a dance where three are moving as one. Uh, because when you have three in the dance, two aren't looking at each other in a fixed gaze of it's you and me and, you know, we love each other. In three, your eyes keep moving uh, because three in unity requires work, <clears throat> relationship, acceptance, love and thoughtfulness. Uh, so they said, well, God's one but three looks like this language of the dance where three are in complete unity. Let's call it a perichoretic relationship. Um, maybe that's as good as it gets because there is no rational way to explain that God is one and yet three. For Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the fact that God was one was an affirmation as against the idols. So there is only one true God and Baal or Ashtoreth or the Canaanite fertility gods or the Egyptian animal gods, <clears throat> they're not God. There is one creator, unique God. But there's plurality in that God, even from Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. And so already there's God and the spirit in Genesis 1. So how can there be plurality in the one unique God? And as scripture unfolds, we end up with this very fully uh, revealed uh, understanding of Trinity, which is not fully revealed until Jesus and the baptism of Jesus uh, as the dove, the spirit, the voice, the father, the incarnated son are visibly together in the purposes of the Lord. So that, that's where we go, yeah, I get it now. It's the father in heaven, the spirit coming down and the son who is now human and divine. That's the Trinity. That's not clear all the way through scripture. <clears throat> but the implication, uh, until Jesus, but the implication for us if we're talking about identity uh, is as blank as this, and, and uh, I won't go to Psalm 8, but I'll just say this, that we cannot know who we are as humans unless we know who we are in relationships of love. So the more we try to work out our identity by withdrawing into a subjective this is in my heart, this is what I feel, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, everything's about me, I've got a YouTube, I've got an iPhone, it's all about me. The more we do that, the less likely we are to work out identity. Identity is worked out in relationship and not any relationship. For example, relationships where I try to control you or manipulate you, hypocritical relationships where I'm not being who I am in relationship with you or vice versa. 
they're not relationships that are going to help me work out identity. The kinds of relationships that uh, cause me and you to work out our, our identity are open, vulnerable, loving, humble, trustworthy, genuine relationships. So it's a sort of an upside-down world. You want to work out who I am? I've got to do it by depending on God and you and living in an open relationship with God and you because that's who God's always been. He's always known God's self through Father-loving Son, Spirit-loving Father, Son-loving Spirit, etc. cetera. Uh, and that relational uh, love between Father, Son and Spirit now for us in his image would say, I cannot know myself without being known by you. Uh, hence the church, which is the community of love. Uh, now, many of us, when we're growing up, and I certainly put myself in that category, want to control relationships. Uh, I want to uh, have certainty. Um, I don't want to take too many risks and vulnerabilities. I don't want you to know all of me. I just want you to know the bits that I think are worth you knowing. I'm going to hide. I won't be knowing myself if I choose to go that pathway. I will only know myself as I'm known by God and by you. Uh, so one of the reasons why the church is called the body of Christ um, is because within a trusting community of loving and being loved, knowing and being known, we can then really know who we are. Uh, and it's a, a quest which goes on for all of life, um, but it's an exciting quest in the light of this theological starting point of triune God. We know ourselves in response to being known. We know ourselves in the mirror of God's love. We know ourselves in, under the gaze of our friends. We know ourselves through confession, repentance, accountability, laughter, lament, tears, celebration. We know ourselves in that way. Uh, <clears throat> and so that's what impels Matt, I think, me, all of us, into honest and trusting relationships because I, I really can't know myself if I'm not prepared to take that path. Yeah. So that, that's my response to what you started with. I'm so glad you came tonight. <laughs> I'll just go sit down. Um, there's something that's dreadfully terrifying about what you've just yeah, said um, yeah. that I want to kind of pick up on uh, because I think I've done life for just long enough to notice some things that I really dislike about myself when I'm around certain people <laughs> that cause me to want to go, oh, I don't want to be around them because all this stuff that bubbles up, right? Which happens in church, um, in marriages, in friendships, in the workplace. What do you say then to someone who says, oh, I don't like who I am when I'm around that person or, pardon the phrase, that's a toxic relationship, so mm. I'm going to just choose better people mm. that bring out the best in me. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what are your reflections on that? Yeah, well, there's a lot to say about that. But one caveat, of course, is when people get caught up in cult groups or destructive community groups, what they've done is surround themselves with a community of deception. Uh, and the tighter that is, the harder it is to get out because... Uh, what we do in those situations is surround ourselves with people who are just like me. Uh, and if I'm in a community of, 
of people who are just like me who echo my own biases, my own loves and hates, uh, it feels pretty good. Uh, one of the problems I have with Christian denominations is that we tend to float to the one which is just like me. So, you know, you have your charismatic churches, you have your Presbyterian churches, you have Baptist churches, etc., etc. Uh, and you tend to find a likeness of culture and language and heritage in those groups. They allow us to be lazy in our friendships. Um, so I want diversity. I want diversity. Uh, I need to rub up against toxic relationships. I don't need to stay in them, but I need to learn from them, grow in them, and at some point make a wise choice about that relationship. We need diversity. Uh, you know, I, this struck me when I was a minister some, some time ago now, but we're at the minister's fraternal and, you know, the Catholic priest was here and I'm a, I was a Presbyterian minister and here's the guy from the, the Pentecostal church and the, the conversation is, which books have you been reading last month? And the, the Pentecostal goes, oh, I've been reading these ones. I say, oh, I've never heard of them. And he says, what have you been reading? I go, oh, I'm reading them. He says, oh, I've never heard of them. The Catholic guy says, oh, I'm reading this. I go, neither of us have ever heard of them. We all have our own little mini cultures that we set up around ourselves. That's actually not that healthy. Uh, I would encourage us to be working on diversity. You know, some people have no friends. Uh, people with disabilities, for example, have very few friends who aren't paid to be with them. We need to be their friends. They're not much like us in some ways. But I will learn a lot about myself by hanging around people who aren't like me. Yeah. That's my answer. <laughs> what was my question? <laughs> of, course, of course we'll have special friends who share our interests and we love them deal and that's great but that's not all we've got yeah love some questions on it though because i think well, it's really important um you just dismissed psalm 8 like we'll just toss that one and i'll out. do psalm 8 if you want me to well the reason that i i thought that that was helpful is because in it it talks about the role of um the people of god as as priests as mm. as liaisons between you know god as image bears and then to a world that needs yeah. to know that and can often only know it through a life poured out on behalf yeah and yeah. and so um yeah I, i'm i'm actually i suppose i'm still wrestling with the, the the nature of that passage in philippians that talks about give yourself to the very end you know yeah. you lay your life down um and i i'm i mean i'm finding that really difficult in the particular you know, situation that I'm, I'm in this week or this month or whatever that I'm thinking, what do I give myself to and how does that look in light of what you're talking about in, in yeah. way of relationships? Well, Philippians 2, which Matt's um, talked from, has that word grasping in it, right? Uh, Jesus did not grasp. Uh, many people take that as a word which, which looks back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They grasped at something God said, don't grasp at uh, the reason why they grasped at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit of that tree um, was because they wanted power on their own terms. Now, Jesus displays power by giving of himself. Uh, we watched, again, over the weekend, the movie Invictus, right? It's uh, Nelson Mandela. It's the rugby World Cup victory of South Africa over the Kiwis. The Kiwis reckon they were poisoned uh, in, 1994 in the Rugby World Cup. Why do we remember Mandela uh, 
as a remarkable human being. Um, not everybody does, but most of the world. The reason is because uh, he had that descent into prison, like Jesus had a descent through crucifixion into the grave, and then this ascent when he was in his 70s to lead a nation toward reconciliation by giving of himself and forgiving his enemies. Now, the giving, as against the grasping, would say, I will use power to empower others. I will use the power of love to set people free. I won't use power to get and accumulate for myself and grasp. Um, so Adam and Eve in the garden grasped. Jesus, who had it all, gave it away in the crucifixion. Uh, now, for us to imitate that looks like, I think, being part of a community who also give to us. So it's not giving all by yourself. It's being part of a self-giving community of love where people watch after you, pray for you, celebrate with you, tell you when to lament and retreat and have a celebration and a break. But the giving commitment has got to be what power is about. Power is about giving. Power is not about getting. It's not about grasping. It's about giving. Uh, and in Psalm 8, so I'll just say quickly a few words. Psalm 8 starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you're mindful? You know, why do you care? The middle of the psalm is that question, why do you care about humans? Because the author is looking at the sky, the night sky, and he's seeing the vastness and the myriad stars, and he goes, um, I imagine the psalmist is writing and he's perhaps got a little child holding his hand or carrying a baby. And he looks from the myriad glory to the tiny, apparently insignificant human, and he said, why do you care about us? And the answer in the psalm is um, because you crowned us humans uh, to be your royal priesthood. And uh, priests in the ancient world, royal priests, uh, they, they gazed two ways. They, they went to the Lord with prayer, praise and sacrifice. They went to the people to tell them what the Lord was like. So they had this intermediary role between the Lord and the people. So what is our task in the world? It is to love and serve God and then to work in the full view of the world for God. Um, so one thing that's happening, I think, in the current arena is that people are becoming spectators, not participants. So the idea of a spectator, so Mark Sayers writes about this in his books, the idea of a spectator is it all comes at me. I sit back and I get entertained and I, I get amused and, you know, I get my food brought to me and whatever. I'm a, I'm a spectator. I, I listen to music. I don't play the violin. I don't participate. Um, I go to football matches and watch the stars, but I don't exercise or look after my body. I'm a spectator. Priests participate. Royal priests participate on behalf of the king. They have their face to the king and their work is their worship. So Psalm 8 answers the question, why do you care? Because of that unique crowning with glory and blessing to work and worship in the world as a participant in what God's up to. Co-creators, some people call it. It's a reflection on Genesis 1. We'll never know ourselves if we only spectate. Uh, we will know ourselves by participating uh, in loving relationships and worship for work 
on behalf of the king. So Psalm 8 is about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to say about that. That was just really helpful. Yeah, I don't want to dampen that. And I think there's probably heaps you could say about just that. I'm immediately like, oh, I do a lot of spectating. I almost regularly refuse to comment on anything that I see on social media because I'm like, uh, whatever. That means I'd have to get my hands dirty and then engage with people. Of, what do they care about what I know? And I see, I suppose, a system, you know, the, the, the socials, as just fundamentally being designed to be exhausting. Um, and so it just, it just puts me in this place of inertia that where all I can do is observe because I'm overwhelmed with how do I engage in a way that is meaningful and might change anything for the better. Um, that's just an honest reflection of what I see in and of my, myself as I'm trying to engage meaningfully in the world around me. Um, how, how would you, I mean, let's, let's speak about that because that, that's, that's something that's very real, I know, for my generation and, and many younger is how do we engage meaningfully in light of I want to participate in relationships with people that I won't actually hug or see face-to-face, but only in ideas. Have you got some reflections on that? Well, let your community be your guide. Uh, well, let the Lord and your community be your guide. Um, exhaustion has replaced wonder, so we are living in exhausting times. People are burning out earlier. Careers are failing. Uh, we're opting to change things regularly, including identity, to bring freshness and newness to our experiences. Um, wisdom in Scripture would say, uh, surround yourself by a loving God and a great community and make those decisions out of um, the prayerful advice of good friends. Um, part of our problem, I think, is that we've become quite individualistic in our decision-making um, so that we say, oh, look, the Lord told me this and I'm going to do it. And they go, well, hang on, has he told anybody else? You know, uh, have you submitted that to the authority of the church? Or don't you believe the authority of the church? Um, you've got to be in great relationships. Now, that means... Uh, I always use the term of a community of like-minded others. Uh, that is people who seek God, love God, pray, read the scriptures, dialogue, criticise, uh, you know, faithful to the wounds of a friend, you know. Uh, anybody can get backslapped by fools. Faithful are the wounds of friends. Have those people around. You've given them permission to ask you any question at all. They help a lot in, you know, deciding what to do and how to engage and when to stop banging our heads on a wall, and there is a time. Um, but we've become way too individualistic. Uh, and not only that, you know, families are far flung and we don't have friends that we've known for 20 or 30 years anymore. Um, you know, we're often renewing friendships with people who've only noticed. They don't know the narrative of our lives. Uh, we've got to stop that. Um, you know, we need to stay in relationships, stay in churches, stay in relationships for good long periods of time where we're, we are known and we know each other. And it doesn't break the friendship when that trusted person that you've known for 15 years says, you know what, you're really being a jerk in that situation. And you go, yeah, you're right. And you don't take offence because you lo they love you. You know they love you. Yeah. You've got to have that. We've all got to have that. Maybe we'll toss it over to, yeah. to you guys because I feel like, I, I'm, has anything come in in the time? Okay. Yeah. 
that's never happened to me. I'm not really sure. I mean, I'd certainly never let anyone down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it hurts to keep loving people who let you down. Yeah, it hurts to keep loving people who let you down. So forgiveness is not cheap. We need to get there but not cheaply. So the first thing we need to do with people who let us down is tell them what happened and seek justice. And on the basis of just, caring love, we will reach forgiveness, we hope, and reconciliation. Part of the problem, I think, with Christians is that our doctrine of forgiveness is too cheap. We go, yeah, I've got to forgive them, so I'm just, okay, it didn't matter, it's okay, I'm over it, it's all right, okay. It's not all right, and they won't grow if they've let you down if you do that. You need to sit them down and say, do you actually realise what you've done? And this is what happened and this is how I'm feeling and this is what maybe a third person sits in there to help, you know, with the tears and all the rest of it. If it's worth the dignity of forgiveness, it's worth the work of justice and reconciliation. So I think with work is how you love people who let you down. But what if they do it again? <laughs> 70 times 7, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, on that, I mean, this is this is important, but. I often say the greatest gift you can give to your community is your trustworthiness. So learn to be trustworthy and stop letting people down. Nobody's making you do that except your own selfishness. Uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no uh, and don't make hollow promises and then fall through. Uh, so don't keep doing it. But if you've got good friends and you do keep doing it, they will tell you and keep loving you because you're worth the work. But it does take work and it's hurt. it hurts. Yeah. Sorry, can you go back to that point that you made about having, you know, not great relationships and all about our own beliefs and all sort of stuff and all having the same thing? Well, some people are all about being legit in your word and some people are all like, oh, sorry, you know, this is a reaction. So is it good to have both those people? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I think... Um, I just, I just, it's good to have diverse, a diverse group of friends, not echoes of your own biases. It, it, you know, sometimes you see people and they're hanging around all, and you look at all their friends and you go, oh, they look the same. You know, <laughs> they all look sort of the same. They're all dressed the same. They've got the same sort of hair. You know, that's probably a self-interest group, a contractual self-interest group of some sort. I want people to have diverse friends. I, I was speaking at a seminar once in New Zealand about friendship and I, John Swinton, who's a theologian of disability, uh, an ex-psychiatric nurse who's become a theologian. He's written books on dementia and so forth. Um, he says the church is fundamentally a community of friendship for people who have no friends. Uh, so we often say, yeah, churches are full of strange people. Well, they, of, course, of course they are. Uh, we're all strange people in one way or other. Um, but the church ought to care for, love and befriend everyone who comes to the church and some people who come to the church have no friends. And I was saying this at this seminar and this girl sort of sitting over here at one of the tables just burst into tears. She, she like loud guffering. Oh! And uh, I, I said, what's happening? You know, tell us what's going on. And she says, oh, my sister's got no friends. And, you know, people hugged her and we talked about her family situation and all that. Uh, lots of people have very few friends. So... Diversity allows for a mixture of kinds of people who are known and being known. And churches ought to be places where that's habitually practised. 
yeah, alongside all those other lovely good friends who are like us and we, we, we treasure them as well. You want to come up, Rach? Come on. <laughs> no, I think you're better at that than I am. Well, I'll stand too then. How do you balance vulnerability in relationship with protecting yourself? Mm, that's a really good question. Do you, you want me to do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, re- just reflect. Well, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot over the years because when I, was a, I was a high school teacher uh, before I was a minister and, you know, uh, uh, being vulnerable in the classroom to your students is, is not wise uh, necessarily. And then we had this era in the home church and small group sort of scene where Christians were basically told, you know, spill your guts and tell everybody everything about you. And we found that went very badly. (laughs) So vulnerability needs to be thought through under the framework of, should I tell you about this thing in my life because I love you and it's for your best interest? Um, Now, sometimes it's not in your best interest to know what I want to be vulnerable about, but I might tell him. So it's vulnerability is locked up in the circle of love for the other. I'll be vulnerable to you for your best interest. Yeah. And then I will be vulnerable to you, but there are limits on that shaped by love for you and your best interests. And there is a time when uh, it doesn't help you to know whatever about me, but maybe that time will come because uh, I love you. I'll be vulnerable to a point, but maybe not yet about that thing. So I think you've got to think about it out of the game, out of the framework of love. Yeah. Being, being known for the sake of the other. That's, that's what I, I think, yeah. Uh, I do have a few thoughts. I mean, they are in the context of, of marriage, which I find even after 24 or 5 years, like this is, this is hard because you – you want to love and care for someone for the long term. I mean, right? That's what you sign up for. And then that dynamic that we were just speaking about takes place where you look at the other person and go, oh, I don't really like that. And how do I communicate that knowing full well that that's probably going on? And, and you know, we were having this conversation today about some dear friends who have perhaps not been as vulnerable and open with one another and then it all tumbles out in, you know, an angry text or a found journal or a whatever. And it's like, oh, the pain is in part um, because they've not journeyed together vulnerably. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of full disclosure. Like, let me just tell you everything about myself, right? Because like Rod said, that can be quite burdensome for someone. And what good is it if it's not going to be reciprocated in a, in a caring, trusting, loving relationship? But it has to go on, I suppose. And if you stop, and I'm just thinking of like a C.S. Lewis quote where he says, if you want to protect yourself, then love nothing. Don't be vulnerable to anything. Don't give your heart to anything because then you will be hurt. And I thought, well, my goodness, actually to love is at its core this self-giving thing. And we want it to be reciprocated and often it's not. That's when things get really, really painful. Yeah, if it's not, then we're saddened and lamenting about it. But we, that, the reason for doing it remains the same. We need to do it because it's the right thing to do. If we don't get reciprocal love from those in our community, um, then we're in trouble and we need to either find new friends or 
change the shape of our community, but we still need to be self-giving and self-loving within our community. Workplaces are a good example. I mean, Christians in a workplace, perhaps working for solicitors' firms or bankers, are very, I think, honest, self-giving. Um, perhaps no one else is. They're all competitive and proud. That's a tough workplace. But it's better that you're there than not there for that workplace, and prayerfully it may change because of you. And if not, the Lord and your friends may say to you, it's time for you to get out of there. It's become toxic. And maybe it is. Um, but I always say to people, stick with it a bit longer than a bit less because we're all pretty rapid to change. And Jeremiah, I mean, his life story in, in the Old Testament book speaks of a person who hung in there for a long time before he went down to Egypt. How do you navigate toxic friendships that boil the question of, you don't have to be close to everyone, is it okay to stop being friends? Yeah, it is okay, but preferably, thoughtfully, and with the conversation and support of other friends. I'd be working out why it's so toxic, um, what's actually going on. Certainly had some toxic relationships. I had some in New Zealand with a, with a staff member at the college I was at uh, who was best friend at the time and, uh, you know, committed an act of betrayal in his terms. Uh, the friendship ended because he didn't repent. And I don't believe that a non-repentant friend can be a friend until the repentance is real, the forgiveness then is real, and you can start again. But there was no repentance, so the friendship ended. But it was hard, long, you know, prayerful. Talked to a lot of people about it. I wonder if um, terms could be defined, because I feel like I hear that often, toxic friendships and or relationships, and it depends on if I'm talking to my 13-year-old or 19-year-old or another friend about what they're defining toxicity as, mm -hmm. which sometimes can just be as simple as they didn't look at me right, or I don't know what it was, but uh, obviously what you're defining is something that you, you say in order for it to have continued, they needed to repent mm -hmm. or change their thinking. About, do, you, mm -hmm. do you want to, I don't know, I, I would love to hear what is the common definition of, of toxicity in, in friendships. How do you use yeah. that term? Well, toxic means poison. And, uh, I think people who are toxic have a history of being toxic, so you're not the first person, and they want you to be their only friend and control you. That's not friendship. So when you're, if you and I know a person who is so-called toxic, the first thing is to put boundaries around your availability to such a person and include others in the caring love that's going to be offered. Uh, however, if that you know, person has destroyed many people's in a manipulative way, well-being and, and so forth, then there might come a time where the boundaries cause the relationships to end. But I think we're all too kind to each other at times. Putting boundaries around relationships are great. Like, don't ring me after nine o'clock. I'm not available to see you on my day off. If you want to talk to me, come to a group and talk to five or six others as well. Join our Bible study group. We don't have to sit and talk by ourselves all the time. So there's ways to put boundaries around difficult relationships and measure, you know, the growth and the willingness of a person to start to work and change. Um, but I think toxic relationships are controlling ones where they're going to they're gonna destroy you eventually. Mm. But put boundaries around them. What do you do when the community you are in is more concerned with the gossip or the story rather than the people it might affect? I think it's hard to influence a community of people outside of a small group where you are engaging honestly. And 
that scenario is probably pretty inevitable in the life of a community where things are said or gossiped about. And I suppose that's the benefit of being in a place where you're under the, the, the teaching of scriptures to, that will speak into that about the damage that gossip does and the way that we are called as followers of Jesus to actually say, I'm not going to talk about that person if they're not here in the room. But I don't know that one person in a community, aside from saying, I'm not going to engage with that, and that takes guts. can't say I've done it a lot, but I have done it and thought, well, boy, this could be the end. And it actually, it wasn't. It was actually really helpful to, for someone. And I've heard others say that too. And so I don't know what one person can do, except that if there's a mutual commitment to saying, we're going to speak truthfully to one another with them here. And if they're not, we're not going to talk about them, especially in a way that we wouldn't be proud of them hearing if they heard us then. Um, yeah, I, I don't know anything outside from that function in a relationship. Yeah, there's, uh, there's ways to structure good conversations with people who are gossips or, you know, speaking in ways that are really unhelpful. And if you've got that, you know, place of trust in their lives, I think a good way to start is to say to a person, can I have an honest chat with you? I have a cup of coffee. Can we have a good honest chat? And I go, sure, you know. And when you get there, uh, fairly quickly I think you need to say something like this. Yesterday, this is what I saw. This is what I think is happening and this is how I'm feeling. Am I right or have I got it wrong? So what I saw was you bad-mouthing so-and-so. What I think is happening is that you've got a real problem with that person and you need to clean that up. I'm feeling really uncomfortable and I know um, you made others feel uncomfortable too. Is that right? And they go, no, that's not right. I didn't do that and the way you've understood it's wrong and you shouldn't feel this way. Now you've got a conversation, but this is what I saw or heard. This is what I think is happening. I'm not, I'm not being condemning here. This is what I saw or heard. This is what I think is happening and this is how I'm feeling at the moment. I'm feeling really awkward. I'm, I'm sort of feeling like you're splintering our friendship group, you know. That's what I'm feeling. Is that right? And then the person either defends or rebuts or agrees and says, yep, yeah, actually, you're right. And then you can talk about cleaning it up. So non-confrontational conversation is something you can plan. And I think it starts by saying to a, to a person, do you mind if we have an honest conversation about a few issues? Cup of coffee tomorrow morning. And once the coffee is happening and the, uh, you need to start the conversation straight away. Don't talk around the bush you say, I've, I've wanted to have a coffee because this is what I saw. This is what I think is happening. This is how I feel. Is that right? I think that's a, a way of doing it. Think, think about how you're going to do it beforehand. Oh, well, if you prolong it and don't address it, it becomes habitual and it festers. And I think it's just, uh, it's not a dignified way for humans to behave. Um, if we think people are made in the image of God, then they can grow up and deal with the wrong stuff and we need to give them the chance to do it. If we just keep glossing over, we're not treating them as image of God. Yeah. <laughs> been there, done that. Do <laughs> you want to talk about it? <laughs> Uh, well, I think I've been there too, but you yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, 
a generic answer from the stage here is, is probably not going to cut to the core. So I don't want to be too prescriptive, I don't think. But we, our oldest child, our daughter, when she was 15, ran away from home and stayed away. We didn't know where she was for ages. And we had an ongoing conflictual situation with her for at least 12, 14 years. You know, she got involved with the wrong guy, um, you know, started doing dope and, you know, all that sort of stuff. A friend of mine once said to me, it's not over till it's over. That is, hang in there and never close the door on a toxic relationship. But because it also affects others in the home, her brothers and sister and friends, etc., sometimes you need to create a distance for a time, but not by closing the door. Mm. You don't close the relationship. And now she's young, you know, she's 40, 42, um, Christian. I just lived around the street and we see her almost every day. But from 15 to 20, whatever, it was, it was horrible. And it's not over till it's over. But toxic relationships, sometimes distance has to be put for the sake of others as well as yourself. But don't close the door. No final, nothing. Never say, I'm, I'm never going to talk to you again. Never say, I can't ever forgive you for that. Never say that sort of stuff. Mm. I, I, I think you're right. I, I think, you know, we just said that you work a lot of these things out about relationship and then yourself through a community that, you know, we're, we're not a cult. You can come and go. Like, you, you can. And if you choose to, to call this place a community, then, then there, there's an abundance of people to surround yourself with. And if I was having a situation with a family member that I was really wrestling with, then I would, I would want to take that prayerfully and thoughtfully to people because I know how serious that can be. And I, I have um, an estranged family member now that refuses to speak to anyone. And it's been 12 years. Like, she hasn't met really my, she couldn't recognize my youngest daughter. It's, it is, it's beyond tragic. It's, when I start thinking about it, it just makes me so sad. And I don't even know what's going on. I just, you know, it's like distant parental things. So I'm just saying, if you are, in any way responsible for being able to step towards a, 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 a relationship that's been estranged for some time, do it, do it prayerfully and wisely. And then if you're in that situation, you do that with, you unpack that, I think, with people that you love and trust and can pray with you and give you honest advice about that specific situation. And uh, this just came to my mind and I'm not sure why, but if anybody ever says to you, I'm going to tell you something and you can't tell anybody else, your immediate response is, I'm sorry, I can't guarantee you that. Don't say, okay, I'll keep it. You can't say that. That is a controlling, mm. uh, unkind, mm. manipulating uh, way of getting you boxed. So if somebody says, I've got something I want to tell you and you can't tell anyone else, you say, I'm sorry, I can't guarantee you that you need to trust me with what I do with what you're going to tell me or don't tell me. It's the aim to know more about people, not the aim to know Christ. Mm. <laughs> Uh, that's what Paul says in Philippians 3, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Uh, so absolutely. The, the goal is, I would put twofold, it's to know God and be known by God. Uh, and because we're a corporate body of Christ, that always involves other humans as well. But sure, the goal is to know and be known by God in Christ in a community. It's always corporate. And a byproduct, a grateful byproduct, is you'll know yourself well. 
and be known well by God and others. Yeah. Now I'd go with the ditto. Yep. Ditto. We were just talking about that over dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you? How do you define divine? Just <laughs> that's a serious question. I mean, define what, it, yeah. what you think it means. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you want me to? Oh well, he's he's the Presbyterian minister, so and he has to leave, and then no one gets. So you go ahead. <laughs> uh, look, it's a big discussion, right? So it's not something to cover off on in a in a in a thirty second answer. Um, but my confidence is that God speaks truly authoritatively through Scripture in a unique way to the gospel of Jesus that uh, abides for all of time. That doesn't mean we have inerrant manuscripts. It doesn't mean that a translated text doesn't bear the marks of translation. It doesn't mean that human authors aren't involved in the process of authorship. But it does mean that the scripture is the word of God written for the purpose of revealing Christ authoritatively, uniquely and abidingly for all time so we can trust it. And begin the art of interpreting well in a community. Interpretation is Holy Spirit and us together having dialogue. So I'm reading... um, a proverb or a psalm, and I go, I don't really get it. What do you think? Prayerfully, we interpret together. Interpretation is not a lone pursuit. It's a relational one. But we start out of a trusting conviction that this scripture is uniquely testifying to God's purposes in Christ uh, authoritatively, and it abides for all time. Uh, I don't like the word inerrant. Uh, I do like the word infallible for its purpose which is salvation through Christ. Uh, does it matter if we know how old King David was when he became king or Jehoshaphat? At one level, uh, it's interesting and helpful for our um, understanding of Israel's history. But at another level, if that has dropped out of the most ancient manuscripts, it doesn't matter much. So her- hermeneutics is the, is the word for interpretation. No one reads the Bible without interpretation. We all interpret. Everybody interprets anything that we read. So do it in a community of like-minded others who love the Lord and pray, and you've got a good chance of interpreting well. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Um, I, th- I think that particularly in the Western church, we've come from traditions where we are largely consumers and we come to churches, you know, for, for the message or for... Um, someone who bears some level of authority to interpret for us. Um, I feel like I'm just kind of unpacking the implications of that even from my own life to the degree that even kind of standing up like I have in this community for like a decade, like I'm far more nervous now than I ever was about like, ooh, like I'm on a journey. Like I'm reading stuff that's absolutely challenging my paradigm and how I approach it and the eyes that I've read it and what I'm in it with. I'm a Western white guy and um, how do I get my head around this without listening to people who have read it in Middle Eastern contexts and as, I don't know, marginalized peoples. Uh, and much of that's been because of conversations that we've, we've had. And so I guess what I would pose is um, 
what's at stake when we say you can interpret how you want to interpret and I'll interpret how I want to interpret and we'll just call it even. I mean, when you hear that or that kind of sentiment, what, what do you think? Well, um, pure, purely subjective interpretation, which is, you know, you've got your view and I've got my view and that, you know, everything's fine, isn't uh, a biblically shaped way of thinking about truth. A biblically way of thinking, shaped way of thinking about truth is, one, there is truth. Two, I can't get to it without uh, my own finiteness, fallibility uh, and, um, and, you know, faith-shaped presuppositions as a starting point. So I can't get to truth neutrally. So how do I do it? Prayerfully with the Holy Spirit and a community and it's a journey. But we have no doubt that there is truth. So the my interpretation, your interpretation, which is, becomes a relativism, isn't in keeping with what Jesus says. I am the truth. We know there's truth. God reveals it to us. But can I get to it neutrally on my own without the Holy Spirit and a community? No. I need prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit and I need a community of fellow interpreters. And that's as good as it gets for everybody, not just Christians, uh, secularists, Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, whoever. Every reader of any authority can only get to it in a community of discussion and they don't have the Holy Spirit speaking to Scripture like we do. So we've got a head start. We've got the author speaking with us about it. Yeah, that's... That's powerful. If, if we'll do the work prayerfully together, we can be, so Descartes wanted certainty. That's not a good word. The word we would use is confidence, not certainty. We don't need certainty. We just trust the Lord. God is good. We've got confidence and confidence goes to trustworthiness. So God is trustworthy. You can be trustworthy. We can be confident in relationship. We don't need neutral certainty. It's not on offer, not to anybody. What's the balance between a like-minded community and a community of dissension or an echo chamber of people who think dissension? Yeah, <laughs> great question. Well, I, I think um, at least the first step is to acknowledge that that's a possibility in any community, that we could actually just be a bunch of, just a bunch of people that are deceiving ourselves and and as things get more difficult outside of the church, then we just hunker together and circle the wagons and remind ourselves how nice we are, whatever, uh, without any real sense of, wait, aren't we gathering here for a purpose greater than its own existence, right? Um, and that's a world that needs Christ. And, and, and so we are reconciled reconcilers. And the degree to which I think our community fuels that truth um, I think it's a good place to start. So how much fruit's happening out there? Like, why are you here? Surely you have better things to do. <laughs> you know, if it's for being equipped in some way to have our hearts and minds challenged for impact out there, that's awesome. Keep coming. But if it's not, what was the other bit? I mean, are we, are we really just a echo chamber of people thinking the same thing? Maybe on some level. Yeah, we, we can become that easily enough. Um, 
one mark of a community that's going to grow is that questions are allowed to be asked. And we've had the, we had the situation in New Zealand where young Christians who were coming to our conferences went back to their churches and questioned the pastor and the pastor said, you've got a spirit of rebelliousness. Um, <clears throat> now, if the leadership of the church aren't welcoming probing questions, then you've got a problem. And uh, the other thing I thought of is, is when traditions become as important as scripture, you've got a problem. So if somebody said, why do we do it that way? Oh, because that's what we started doing back in 1963 and we've always done it that way and Pastor so-and-so loves doing it that way. Yeah, but maybe we could do it differently. Yeah, well, why don't we talk from the scriptures to the tradition? The tradition is not as important as the scripture. So scripture over tradition questions need to be asked and allowed to be asked. Yeah, you guys are all right? It's 8.30. What time are we going till? 11. <laughs> okay, all right. I got to work tomorrow, but... What was that, Chris? Hunker down. Hunker down. Okay. Great question. I, I think it's... Um, it's contemporary in the form that we're hearing it because it has become so incredibly individualistic and secularism has, has become, some commentators, uh, has become sexualism. So it's become all about sexual identity, uh, not even other aspects of identity. Uh, and uh, so the whole gender issue, uh, that, that's fresh and new. So I think the, I think the shape of the identity um, struggling that's going on at the moment is new, yeah. I think it's new though after a very long historical build-up to where we've got through the philosophies of the 18th, 19th, 20th century, but it has uh, moved at pace since the 1960s and new technologies, of course, and the porno pornography industry and the fashion industry and the entertainment industry. Um, somebody interestingly was saying the other day that um, performance has replaced formation. Uh, that we often talk about for, the words form, that it, schools form people, churches form people. You used to go out into the world to be formed and then we talk about transformed or counterformed. Uh, but now we're talking about performed, uh, you know, people getting up on stage and knowing who they are by a performance, which is being authentic, perhaps it's singing or acting or painting or risky, adventurous uh, hobbies or whatever. Um, but even in churches where, for example, the music team are brilliant, performance can take over from formation. Uh, this guy was actually saying we are formed by performing. So the identity things become hugely individualistic and very much about me being authentic and performing. Now, that's a real problem and churches must be places of formation, not performance. So um, if we, that balance, I mean, we love people with skills and gifts, you know, participating in what we're doing, but that's not what it's all about. It's all about discipleship, Christ, the body of Jesus and all that. So I hadn't thought much about that before, but the word perform as against formation uh, is becoming rather 
rather um, central in culture. And all these shows, you know, like chef and cooking shows and singing shows and ninja, you know, all those things. Ninja warrior, Rod. Yes, ninja warrior. They're all performance shows where really fit, strong people or really fast, pressured cooks or really great singers perform and we spectate and they're formed by performing and we're formed by watching them perform and that's not participation or formation for us. Mm. I, I think I would only add maybe just another aspect of it. Um, uh, in my, I guess, interest in um, the formation of leaders, people who can sustain a course and lead others in an organization, whatever that might look like, and finish well doing it, um, I've got a bunch of evidence to suggest that that doesn't happen with, um, with any consistency if the leader doesn't know themselves, doesn't understand their identity and reflect on who they are in light of the scenario that they're in, the people they're around and the God that they, that they know. And so, so hearing what it is that God says about it, I find it fascinating that, that God the Father speaks before Jesus does anything. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. You're like, what? Wow, well, I think Jesus was like, oh, thanks. You know, like I, I actually think that that was a legitimate affirmation of who he was um, prior to anything he did. Um, and, and I think that that's true in my own experience. So when I've had roles that I know, I have performed roles as a chaplain or, or, or whatever, and I've always thought, well, that's just something that I do. But you do anything for long enough, and it's like it just weaves its way into this is who I am. And then all of a sudden, that role is removed, right? And then you're going, wow, I'm at sea. I, what do I do? Because everyone was, like, treating me like this because I was good at performing. And my, I mean, if that doesn't cause and necessitate reflection where you're like, oh, God, I need you to reform and re-inform who I think I am. Like that, I think that has to happen a bunch of times in your life as you get older. You're a parent of young children and then of teenagers and then they're gone and then you're and you know, like empty nest. It's a thing, right? Or a marriage ends tragically or a baby dies and that, that forms you and you're asking, wait, who am I now living with loss or living with grief or whatever? So I, I think it would just, I suppose, the, the flip side of that. I think it's inevitable. We, like, we have to ask those questions. They're, they're quests that our heart asks. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? And we, like, I think we ignore the answers that our subconscious is telling ourselves to our own detriment. If we just, like, oh, yeah, well, I don't really think about that. I'll bet you do. <laughs> Your heart's already answering those questions without even putting words to it. So, anyway. Oh. <laughs> Come on, you're, you're doing pretty well, Rod. How do I grow up? How do I become an adult? Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, you adult. <laughs> How do I adult? Adult being used as a verb. That's great, isn't it? How do I adult? Ad adulting, Rod. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Welcome to the, the adulting. lingo. That's right. Okay. Um, you adult <laughs> by developing a great
bunch of consistent practices in community by which you learn perseverance, wonder, limitations, and joy. That's how you adult. There you go. Mm. <laughs> uh, the word practices is a really important word for participants, right? Participants practice things like playing the piano rather than buying another CD, like going bushwalking rather than watching another travel show. Um, practices are bodily. They involve you in the world. That's how you grow up. Participation, practice, consistency, perseverance, limitations, wonder, joy. That's how you are. Yeah. <laughs> how can I? I don't know if that's right. right but what do you yeah, you go, man. I, you, I am totally. Have you had all the general? No, no, no. I'm a shocker. <laughs> I just, you know, what do I get? What can I get away with? <laughs> um, I, I feel like you, you, your, your success in the world, however you define that, your competence, your um, areas of responsibility tend, and I know that this is for me, I, I'm like, oh man, I've got to grow up. <laughs> like I've got children now or I've got um, someone who's depending on me. There is an acceptance of responsibility that I think it produces the adulting that we're kind of looking for. And so, you know, you, you want to see the antithesis of adulting, just watch someone shirk their responsibility or go, nah, it's too hard. Like, oh, darn, I'm already, I'm already saying that in my heart of hearts. This is too hard. And then the adult in me or something is like, no, it's not. God's called you to this, and it's damn right it's hard. Like, being an adult is hard. Denying yourself is hard. Um, and, I, and, I, and I will just say, um, speaking to guys my age, I'm, you know, I'm only in mid-40s. I know it's hard to imagine, isn't it? And, I'm, and I have friends who are in their mid-40s and they're doing things that children do. And it is killing them. I'm watching it, going, oh my goodness. Whatever needed to happen years ago in order for you to realize how detrimental that was. What is, you know, as a, say as a teacher, how do I instill that into my young people so they're not doing stupid stuff at 46 that they were when they were 16? Yeah, I don't have a, that was a tidy answer, Rod. I don't know how to, how to stitch that up, but um, I will say it has to do with responsibility and, and saying I can respond under God's gracious resources that he gives us. We can say, yeah, we, what, we, we, can, we can step up to a task that um, I think only an adult should. <laughs> you don't want a kid doing so many of the things that really matter, right? So anyway, a waffle. I, oh, sorry, were you going to wrap things up? I was going to end with a poem. It's uh, one of my favorites and written by someone I know that Rod's met. And uh, I've had this on my mind for, um, for the night. And I wonder, um, however it is you might listen to things, if it's with your eyes shut or not. Um, I was going to put it on the screen, but I wasn't adulting well at the time. Now, this is called uh, This God. This. this God. This God. This God could put on eyebrows and kneecaps and tear ducts and saliva glands 
this god could be born under the Terence Augustus and Herod. This god could accept the smells of shepherds and the extravagancies of political emissaries. This god could start life, a vulnerable hunted child born under scandal. This god could grow up under foreign domination and among terrorists and outcasts. This god could sit in the streets playing marbles. This god could wear with pride the calloused, splintered hands of an honest workman, building the houses and fixing the furniture of half-castes, outcasts, and bigots. This god could ask his cousin to baptize him along with the rest of the crowd, and could make the best vintage Pinot Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon, even when the guests were too drunk to know the difference. This god could befriend a bloke in a tree with small man syndrome, and even enjoy the company of a questionable woman, uh, a, a woman of questionable character washing his feet, giving her his full and undivided attention, and ignoring the eye-rolling lawyers and theologians. This god could spend the whole night making a whip to crack over the backs of con artists who rip off the poor. This god could wrap the greatest truths in the simplest stories and put a sting in the tail of every yarn. This god could let himself hang on a tree, nails tearing at his sinews, blood, feces, and urine running down his legs. This god could invite women to be the first to know he was back and could delay his own glorious homecoming long enough for a bite of breakfast on the beach with an old friend to let him know that they were still no hard feelings and to pass on his mantle. This god could take his own story and give it the most surprising ending. This god is worth knowing. This God could reach into the crevices of my soul to bring to life the longings I smother so pathetically and recklessly with shame and excuses. And he could raise me up to, up to life with him. This God could give me every blessing he could give himself. This God could draw me out of my petty self-interest without a hint of tut-tut or frown or patronizing smile. This God could be more infuriating and fascinating and gobsmacking than any God I could ever make up. This God could love my obsessiveness and overlook my forgetfulness, could laugh and cry with me and come play with me and make me his glory. This God could love me, trust me, but this God could never be safe. This God is worth knowing. This God I want to know in the face and spirit of Jesus. Can we give you a um, Just before you... 
fine to see it again. Um, I haven't asked you this, but if there's anybody that would like to catch you for a quick word or a question, would if you'd be willing to do that um, or, or pray together before we go. Um, but could I ask one of you to pray for us as um, our young adults community as we leave? Yeah, let's pray for you guys. Well, we just read a poem about you and we thank you for Mark who wrote that. And uh, his way of describing your awesomeness and mystery, majesty and surprising ways. I pray for the young adults here tonight and the ministry, for Rachel and the team, for others who aren't here but uh, very much part of the show uh, and the relationships and the, the, the ministries that are occurring, uh, that they would pursue you, uh, be known by you and know you deeply together and in that that they would know each other well and be known by each other well. I pray that trustworthiness and faithfulness would be the marks of this community and uh, along with that hilarity, uh, lament, laughter and tears. And I pray that when the next tragedy strikes, there'd be wisdom and care. And I pray that each person here will go on with you for life and love you with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. So bless them with the fullness of your spirit in this place together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again, guys. Give them another round of applause. We'll finish off here. Like I said, if anybody wants prayer, um, these guys will pray, I'll pray. I'm sure there'll be others that are willing to um, pray if you want. Um, and also Ian's been kind enough to record this evening. So if you want to have another listen um, through it or if somebody's missed out, um, you'll have another opportunity to do that. So, um, yeah, that's great. Thanks so much for coming, guys. And, um, yeah, just keep an eye out on our social media and um, just for the things that are coming up um, to stay involved. So have a blessed night. <laughs>